Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're live in Aurora, Nebraska, reading Isaiah 41 to 11, with a group of pastors from the Omaha Presbyterian Seminary Foundation's Pastoral Leadership Revitalization Program. We explore Isaiah 40 as a text speaking hope to traumatized communities, both in the time of the Babylonian exile and also today. We discuss the relationship of God's punishment and God's mercy, the call to speak words of hope and encouragement to one another, and Isaiah's image of the triumphant God as a tender shepherd carrying the people home. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy. We're in Nebraska. We're in Nebraska. We're never in Nebraska. (laughs) I've never, actually, I've been to Nebraska before, but I've never spent time in Nebraska. It is a lovely, lovely place. Mm -hmm. Bobby, what are we doing in Nebraska? Well, we are on a retreat uh, with some pastors that is sponsored by the Omaha Presbyterian Seminary Foundation. And so we've been here uh, for the last two days reading texts together and talking with this group of pastors about how we do text study and um, how we think about narrative lectionary and how it's useful. And so today we're going to talk about Isaiah 40, and we're going to do it with our new group of pastor friends. Yeah, really, you and I are not going to talk about Isaiah 40. Our, our pastor friends are going to talk about Isaiah 40. It is true. So, as always, before we enter a new text, I need to ask you what our listeners need to know for context. Well, so Isaiah 40 is a, quite a famous passage. It starts what is oftentimes known as, the, as second Isaiah or Deutero-Isaiah. There's a whole scholarly argument about Deutero-Isaiah and whether it exists and how it belongs to the rest of the book. But essentially what we see in the book of Isaiah is that chapters 1 through 39-ish deal with the 8th century in the reigns of Ahaz and Hezekiah where we were a couple of weeks ago when we talked about that Song of the Vineyard text and the Stump of Jesse text. This part of Isaiah that we're reading today comes from about 200 years later, uh, sometime around the end of the exile, around 540 or 538 BCE. So what has happened in the meantime in those 200 years is that The people of Judah and Jerusalem have been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They have seen the city of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem destroyed. They have been carried away into exile in Babylon, where they have been for 50 years. And the voice of 2nd Isaiah speaks into that sort of late exile after this long time away from the land, after the, the destruction of Israel, It comes and speaks into that context, this sort of message of hope about the end of the exile. Are there other things we should say about that? 
I think that's a great summary. I think that gets us where we need to be. The only other thing that's on my mind is, you know, I if you read through Isaiah, if you happen to be reading through Isaiah like somewhat consecutively, it's a pretty jarring jump. Yeah. The the first chunk of Isaiah, Isaiah the 8th century prophet really believes and encourages people to have faith that God would never let the temple be destroyed and Jerusalem is safe because the temple is there. Mm, yeah. And then there's sort of this gap between 39 and 40 where, well, that didn't work out very well. (laughs) So part of what I think the next part of Isaiah is doing is it's talking to a traumatized population and trying to figure out theologically what happened. Is it that their God was not as powerful as they thought. Mm-hmm. It is that their God has abandoned them. Like, what? how can you theologically explain the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem? And so I think I think that's, that's always in my mind when I'm reading this part of Isaiah. That's a really helpful context. Should we ask our friends around the room, is there anything else we should say about Isaiah 40? Oh, we should ask them that. Is there any other context you all want to provide? Can you say something about the title, The Book of the Consolation of Israel. Mm, I would I would love to. I don't actually, I, I don't know that title, but you raised something that I would like to speak to, which is that this section within the Jewish community, this section of Isaiah, because there are so many words of comfort, is read in a particular season. It's read between the, the uh, holiday, but it's a holiday of mourning, the fast day of Tisha B'Av, which marks the destruction of the temple and many other tragedies in the Jewish history. And there are, there are eight weeks between that and Rosh Hashanah. And so each week we read a part of this section of Isaiah, um, and we call them the Haftorot of Consolation. So that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> We should probably also say that in the Christian tradition, we're, we're still in the season of Advent. And so this season of sort of expectant waiting for the arrival mm-hmm. of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And th- so we'll want to think at some point about how this text fits into to that context as well. Good. Well, All right, let's read get some to text? It. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Beloveds, will you share your name with us and your community? My name is Greg Allen Pickett, and I am one of the pastors at First Presbyterian Church in Hastings, Nebraska. And I'm Craig Mead. I'm pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Beaver City, Nebraska. All righty. So here is how Isaiah 40 begins. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and declare to her that her term of service is over that her iniquity is expiated, for she has received at the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. So I'm going to start us off with a question or two, and then I will open it up to hear if you all have questions that you want to add also. This first phrase, comfort, oh comfort my people, who, who is God talking to? Who is supposed to be comforting my people? What do you imagine? That's an interesting question because the prophet is speaking to uh, the exiled, and and so is it is it 
within their own community, they're supposed to be comforting one another. Mm-hmm. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. Because then it goes on to to say, here's what, why and how you're going to be comforted. That the, the punishment is over, your sins have been paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so are they supposed to be comforting one another? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's interesting because that, I should have told you this before we started, because you're not looking at the Hebrew, but the verb is plural. So, so the, the, com, the command, the command the is it is to, It is more than one entity that is to be doing this comforting. So it's y'all comfort my people. Mm-hmm. Who do you think is being asked? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, um, I have often thought about it as sort of, uh, comfort, comfort each other, like you are each other's comfort. I have wondered about the possibility of some kind of, if there's some kind of like angelic court, heavenly host having a conversation yeah. here. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is one of those. Like, I don't. There's this is not a quiz. Like, I don't have. But a, <laughs> but, but 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 you're right. I like that because the following line is her Israel's penalties have, or depending on your mm-hmm. translation, the mm-hmm. penalty has been paid. So. Your thought of a uh, of a heavenly host comforting this group that's been through this these trials, yeah. comfort them because this is the end of that. This their penalties have been paid. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. When you and Bobby introduced the passage, I was particularly struck at the the gap between mm-hmm. thirty nine and forty, and what happened in that gap. And it doesn't it get, doesn't get named. Maybe it doesn't need to be named. Yeah. Uh, maybe those who are reading would know. Uh, my readers in Nebraska don't know about that gap unless we yeah. bring it to their right. attention. Right. But um, perhaps the the original readers would know what happened between the end of 39 and the start of 40, and that was just calamitous. Yes. Sure. It's just tragic. But the prophet Isaiah says that, that the folks, the Israelites brought this on themselves, and that it was, in fact, a punishment of God. Mm-hmm. Um, that God sent these foreign armies to capture and, and exile and all that stuff. And now here we are, and it's like, okay, it's done, mm-hmm. it's over, it's past. Mm-hmm. But who's who's doing the comforting? I'm, I'm still not sure. <laughs> but yeah, I, that's, go ahead. No, that's, I, just, I agree with him. I, it's who's doing the comforting is, is difficult. I love what you pointed out there about the the theology that is already here. And, you know, I, I mentioned in the introduction that part of the challenge of this time is the first part of Isaiah makes it sound like this never could have happened. Like based on Isaiah's theology in 1 through 39, this could not have happened. And yet here we are. And it has happened. It has happened. And so you start with comfort and then it does, it puts right out there this theology that Israel had sinned and this was, you know, iniquity, but but it's but it's done now. This was a punishment and it's done. It, it, it is, is there something important about the fact that it was God that did this, that God that did the punishing? I mean, it, to me, that's pretty important that this didn't just happen by circumstance this is something that God intentionally did to punish to punish the Israeli people why does that feel important to you because I think we sometimes look at sections of the Bible Old Testament New Testament and we forget we take God out of it mm-hmm. 
And I think that, it, it, and I don't want to be jumping ahead, but uh, this is like three different stories. 41 through 11 is three different stories, and they're all about God, God punishing the, the Israelites, and that's over now. Then you jump to preparing a way for the Lord. He will, and, and that's important too, preparing a way for the Lord. The Lord's might will be, I don't know the exact words, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Yeah. will be revealed. It's, this is intentional. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the rest of it. But I just think that it's, that it's important that this is what God has done. Mm-hmm. And this was intentional on God's part. Greg, do you have a thought about God being seen here as the, the actor in this calamity that took place? Well, I struggle very much with that. Yeah. Uh, trying to wrap my head around uh angry and vengeful God that would either punish or allow people Mm -hmm. to be punished in that way. And that's why I like the second part of this pericope (laughs) because it's the turn. And then we get this image of God as shepherd, both protector and comforter. But yeah, I struggle mightily with what happened between verse 39 and verse 40 and who that's attributed to and why. So let me ask this. This might be a heretical question in your tradition. I'm not sure. But I think of this sometimes as this is the, I imagine the population who has experienced this, again, trying to figure out what do we do theologically with what has happened? My point of reference is sort of post-Holocaust theology. Like what does the Jewish community do with their faith after something unimaginably terrible has happened? And one option is to say God was not powerful enough to stop it. And one option is to say the things we believed were true were never true. And one option is to say God did this. And then an extension of that is God did this and it's actually we caused it. So it gives you some sense of control almost. Like we did a bad thing and there was a bad result. But if we don't do that thing again, it won't happen again. I feel like I read a lot of this through it. That was not a question. I (laughs) I meant that to end in a question, but um, I'll just tell you my thoughts and say, what do you think? I read this a lot as sort of a traumatized population trying trying to make sense of what has happened to them, at least as much as this is like the capital T truth, absolutely what, you know, I, I think they, this all came through the hand of a human. And what do you think about that? Well, our, our Protestant theology shifted as well post-World War II. Uh, we, we do it around the question of theodicy, mm-hmm. right? The justification mm-hmm. of God. God is all-powerful. God is love. And yet, sin exists in the world. And we had to acknowledge post-World War II that that, that part's true. Yeah. And so which of these other two do we fudge on to hold these three in tension? Yeah. Right? Do we, do we say God's not all-powerful or do we mm-hmm. say perhaps God is not love? Uh, because we can't deny the existence of sin in the world after yeah. World War II. Yeah. And our theologians, you talk about post-Holocaust theology, that's, I don't know that we use the same terms. But it's the but, same question. But we shifted the in, the, in the 50s, and all of a sudden, when we started addressing theodicy, up to that point, we had fudged on the, the sin yeah. or evil in the world. Yeah. We couldn't do that anymore. And so then we had to look at these other two and say, okay, well, which one of these then do we have to fudge on to hold yeah. these three ideas and tension? As, as true to our faith. And I, I still struggle with that. And mm-hmm. so much ink has been spilled yes. over that question, whether it's a macro level like Holocaust and evil, or whether it's a micro level like a child getting cancer. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right? How do we hold these three things in tension? And certainly that's what these folks are experiencing right now. They're holding this intention and trying to explain in their worldview, how could this have happened to us? Yeah. Is it a good explanation? (laughs) Is there anything else you all want to raise up just from, this is two verses that I feel like we could talk about for an hour. Sure. The, The doubling of punishment. Yeah. So the question on the table is, what do we make of the last part of this? She has received at the hand, she, Jerusalem, has received at the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. Is that supposed to be comforting? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, all over now. And it puts it right back into the Lord is the actor in this. Right. The Lord is the one who brought the punishment, hmm. right? Jerusalem has received from the Lord's hand double, double. punishment right. for all their sins. Mm-hmm. And so then we can't fudge on whether or not God was an actor in this, right? Mm-hmm. This didn't just happen to the people. God more than allowed, God was a participant, right? Yeah. And then what do we do with that? And it is for it's for sure got to be over now. Like if we've already gotten double, then maybe it's got to be <laughs> maybe let's, <laughs> let's keep reading yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> okay <laughs> thanks y'all thank, thank, you. You. thank you let's have a hand for our <laughs> all right so we have new interpreters for our second section of the text so would y'all like to introduce yourselves I'm Trisha Dillon Thomas, um, Director of Programs for Omaha Presbyterian Seminary Foundation. And I'm David Boyd. I am the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Gothenburg, Nebraska. All right. So we'll read the next section of text, which begins in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice is crying out, clear the Lord's way in the desert, make a level highway in the wilderness for our God. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill will be flattened. Uneven ground will become level and rough terrain a valley plain. The Lord's glory will appear and all humanity will see it together. The Lord's mouth has commanded it. So the first group that was talking to us raised two possibilities about these imperatives. One of them was that some sort of angelic forces are being commanded to go and do things. And the other was that the community itself was being asked to do these things. So I'm, I'm curious when you read that in verse three, clear the Lord's way, make a level highway in the wilderness. Do you gravitate toward one or the other of those, whether it's the angels or whether it's the community itself? I think I, I, I want to believe that it's the community itself. I want to believe that this is a unified voice saying, okay, this is going to end and we are coming together with God as opposed to an angelic voice. And, and it, it hearkens me back to the voices crying out in before the Exodus mm. um, that it's like, you know, no, we are crying out to God. Yeah. Um, and perhaps with some recognition that, all right, we're going to clear the way. We're going to help clear the way. Yeah. so that, that God can be with us fully again. Yeah. The voice is crying out, too, that I, I, I go to Rachel, and, you know, voice is crying out. Hmm. 
Um, I don't know if that's relevant to this, but. Yeah, so, I mean, that's really interesting. So when you read in verse three, a voice is crying out, y'all are hearing the voice crying out as being the voices of the people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is actually different than what I was asking, which, <laughs> but in a really like super interesting way. Like, I really like that, that the idea is that the people are crying out to somebody, clear the Lord's way. That's such an interesting reading. But I'm not sure it totally makes sense that voices crying out to clear the way, unless it's a voice that has is reaching a new hope or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, because it's not clear, because we don't know. It's just like, like I said, that's what I would like to hear in this, but we're not told. And I really like that interpretation because, you know, then what you're saying is the people are crying out to each other from this context of exile. Hey, y'all, clear the Lord's way, make a level highway. So it's this sort of empowerment. Like it is both a cry of anguish and an empowering like the community is sort of rallying itself. Is that, mm-hmm. that's kind of how you're reading it? Yeah. And God has done this before. Do we remember? God mm-hmm. has done this before. With the, pulling back to the Exodus. Yeah. yeah. I guess when I read this, I don't understand why we need to make a level highway. Yeah. <laughs> why? I don't understand. Like why that. does God need a highway? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And who's that for? I mean, it just, it shows me like power and mightiness, but it's calling on the people to do that, kind of. I don't know. That, that part is very confusing to me. So the image is a level highway in the wilderness oh. for our God. It's not an obvious image. Like, the, yeah. the question you're asking is a good question. About, like, mm-hmm. what is that image trying to do? You have thoughts about level highway, wilderness, and God needing one? I don't really think of wilderness as not being level. So I, yeah, that's fair. It depends on what wilderness we're thinking about. Like one possibility, like we could be talking about Sinai wilderness. We could be hearkening back to Exodus. We could be talking about the wilderness that's between Mm -hmm. Judah and where the exiles are in Babylon. We could be talking about like a metaphorical wilderness about Mm -hmm. the difficulties of life. I kind of looked at, at both that maybe there is the physical distance between Babylon and and Jerusalem. But also it's just like, okay, our life has been very, very difficult. And it is time for things to get leveled out. We've been climbing mountains and going through deserts and there hasn't been water and there hasn't, nothing has worked the way that it's supposed to work when God is really with us. So, you know, I, I think both of those are kind of valid. Mm-hmm. Isn't there something about, um, I think I was talking to a professor at Columbia, Brandon Breed, mm-hmm. who was talking to us about Genesis and how a God coming out of the wilderness is this weird kind of a thing. But I'm not sure I know enough to say more about that. But that it's like this unknown kind of, there's something in that of itself. Do you know? Uh-huh. I don't know what what uh, specifically what he was thinking about, but that but it's true. Like you think of gods in the ancient world as sort of being located in temples and cities, like urban dwellers, and so to have a god whose habitat is in the wilderness, both you know in the period of the Exodus where they discover God at Sinai and sort of in the middle of nowhere, and also here, like you expect God to be in a temple in Jerusalem, but God is not there. God is someplace else. Why? Well, because the city's been destroyed and the temple doesn't exist. And so God needs, I mean, I think what's happening here is God needs a way to get back to the temple. 
And so the, here we're making a highway so that God can come riding back into town. But it also uh, I mean, points to this restoration um, that's being proclaimed here, being creational uh-huh. a, as opposed to just necessarily people. It's just like, okay, no, no, everything's shifting. Hills are shifting, mountains are shifting, valleys are shifting, everything's shifting yeah. to make this happen. Yeah. It's that imagery too of, of coming out of the wilderness yeah. that I yes. often associate with something new is yeah. happening. And now there's a highway where that then the people can come too. So there's like a passage for the people. To be able to go back and forth, yeah, which is not... interesting when you think about trauma and feeling like God has been yes. absent. Yes. And now there's this connection point where you can both go back and forth to one another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those verbs in verse four about the valleys being raised up and the mountains being flattened, those are passive, right? So we don't know who's doing those things. Do you have a thought about that? Is it is somebody doing that? Is it, are, they, are the mountains and valleys just responding themselves? Like, how do you read that? That's tough. I mean, is, is this, a, is it creational? Is it personal? Is this, okay, the, the valleys and mountains within us? Um, are those what are being smoothed out, or is it is it uh, is it something much greater than that? Um, difficult to tell, or can it be both? There's something about I don't know. I keep I keep now that I'm hearing this and reading this, thinking about creation and a almost just starting over. And my mind is going to near the beginning of Genesis where there's creation and things are mm-hmm. created. This there's been this chaos mm-hmm. and now things are gonna things are coming together and recreated mm-hmm. so the earth is sort of responding in the way the earth responded then and know. almost too like you know the flood story mm-hmm. and then now there's like a new kind of mm-hmm. create like a starting over the last image that's in this little section is in verse five the lord's glory will appear so the, the way has been set in the previous verse and now the glory of the lord appears and then the language is all humanity in the Hebrew basar, all flesh. We'll see it together. I love that. I don't know that I can articulate what I love about that, but to me, that that image and that vision is really powerful. There's like a a uniting. You know, there's there's the highway. Things are happening. The earth is moving, and all of a sudden, there is this this path is open, and there's this. We're back together again. Mm-hmm. I love that we're together. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like it also a lot because in saying all flesh, it's just like oppressed and oppressor mm-hmm. are all going to witness that there is something larger at work in what is happening here. Mm-hmm. That this is not just this specific group of people, but that you know, hopefully the, the powers that be at that time are all going to see this, mm-hmm. um, are all going to know, yeah, this is God at work here. Yeah. And there's so much that you hear, like here, 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 I'm going to tell you about it, but this is like, we're all going to, we're all going to see it. Mm-hmm. You need to see this. Mm-hmm. It feels very much like the culmination of kind of restoration. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. All right, let's thank our friends. Hi, y'all. It's Amy, one of your friendly co-hosts, and I want to tell you why Bible Worm is important to me. 
There's a Jewish tradition that Torah study is best done with a partner, a hevruta we call it, someone who pushes you beyond where you would have gone on your own. Bobby was essentially my hevruta for 10 years of grad school, and I've never found a thought partner quite like him. So when he asked if I wanted to read texts together, there was no real thought process before I said yes. The decision to record this podcast the way we do was risky. We don't have a script. We don't pre-talk things. We are thinking together live. And it is my hope that precisely because of that, you feel invited to think along with us. Because everyone needs a Hevruta. And if you don't have one, I hope you will let us be yours. If this way of being in relationship to biblical text speaks to you the way it speaks to me, I hope you'll help sustain us through Patreon at whatever level makes sense for you. There are some nice perks if you need them. Liturgies, videos, monthly discussion groups. This year I've added some recordings of the chanting of these texts that you might hear in a synagogue. Or you can just support us to show your appreciation and help us know that this work matters. Thanks for listening and for supporting us however you can. Okay, friends, will you introduce yourselves? Sure. My name is Damon Jensen Heitman, and I serve as the associate pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Hastings, Nebraska. My name is Paul Williams. I'm the pastor of the Anderson Grove Presbyterian Church in Bellevue and a professor of religious studies at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. I'm Becky Ansley Dobish. I am the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Broken Bow, Nebraska. And I am Jill Boyd, and I'm the pastor at the First Presbyterian Church in Cozad, Nebraska. I am going to read to you verses 6 through 8. A voice rings out, proclaim. Another asks, what shall I proclaim? All flesh is grass, all its goodness like flowers of the field. Grass withers, flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, man is but grass, grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God is always fulfilled. This passage, it's almost hard for me to read without laughing because the last cycle of narrative lectionary, Bobby and I recorded this. And I will tell you, I have so much trouble just picturing what is happening. Like a voice, a voice, like who, who are these people? So my suggestion on the podcast, please do not go back and listen to this, is was that we try to do it in voices somehow to indicate which voice is which. And Bobby made this ridiculous like, grass withers, flowers feed. And so now that's the voice in my head. Anyway, <laughs> it was me. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Show. Bobby did it. You did it like a little puppet show. I didn't do that. Bobby did it. Um, what do you? What do you picture is happening? What do you mean a voice rings out? Who's talk? Who? What is happening? What? What do you picture in your head? My translation in the NRSV: uh, a voice says, "Cry out," and I said. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. it sounds like. The prophet, like, okay, so what do you want me to say to the people? And then it's the way, and I know, you know, Hebrew doesn't have quotation marks and punctuation and things like that. But 
what's written is very confusing on what is spoken mm-hmm. and what is, I don't know if it's thought or if it's narrative commentary on the subject or what. Yes, there is a there's a different manuscript manuscript issue where there is one that says a voice calls out proclaim I ask what shall I proclaim and I think in that in that manuscript it definitely I like reading that as the prophet. So was it clear in the manuscript when the second voice says what shall I cry or proclaim and then it continues all people are grass. Mm-hmm. I mean from mm-hmm. there on, it's all about the inconstancy, the transience, the impermanence of human experience or nature, and the permanence of the Word of God. But do we have any sense from the manuscript mm. who is saying these words? Because I'm hearing the prophet, I agree with that interpretation, that the voice is some kind of angelic voice, cry out, kind of nudging. Mm-hmm. And the prophet says, what, what can I say? People are like grass. You know, they, they come, they go, they don't pay attention, they're, they're here briefly and then, and then uh, gone. They, the word of our Lord will stand forever, but that is as a result of the breath of the Lord. I mean, the breath of the Lord blows upon the grass and the flowers. People are like that. They just wither. Mm. But then he contrasts that with the permanence of the Lord, of God, of the word of God. So... It's almost like the prophet saying, there is no point because of the way people are. Yeah. And that's, I, I'm not sure if that makes sense from the manuscript or from other theological um, readings. I have no idea about the manuscript. <laughs> I'll just say, the manuscript, it doesn't have any punctuation. So, so yeah. you can absolutely move around quotation marks, periods, you know, yes, that is all fair game. So there's no, all no in guidance play. in there for this question. Okay. No, yeah. no, but okay. that's really interesting. I find it interesting because I find a lot throughout all of this passage up to and including this point, questions about who should be doing what and when and where and why and how. And a lot of, even at, even at that very first verse, like, comfort, comfort my people. What, how, why, mm-hmm. what does that mean? How do we comfort one another? And I also found myself thinking, if I was the prophet, assuming that this is the prophet being spoken to, part of me would be tempted to respond, well, why don't you do it, God? Um, if you're the one who either allowed for this punishment or if you're the one who created this punishment, why don't you do it? And the leveling, the val- raising the valleys and lowering the mountains, that seems like work that God, that's, if that's creation work, then that's God's domain to be doing those things. Uh, and, in, and then here again, what should I call out? What, what should I say? And whose voice is speaking and whose voice is needed? Yeah, I don't know. I suppose it could be anybody that hears the call to proclaim or to call out should be, I guess, saying something or doing something. I, I love this possibility. I'm just going to say that. But I just, I, I love this whole opening up of that question of... Um, what exactly was proclaimed versus what is Isaiah talking back to the voice mm-hmm. and saying, why? Proclaim why? <laughs> why should I proclaim? Mm-hmm. So, Paul, you were talking about how it went 
straight from uh, cry out, what shall I cry? And then it goes into all people are like grass. Mm -hmm. And when you just read that first line, mm -hmm. all people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. And you just stop there. Yeah. That's a really beautiful image, mm -hmm. you know, that all people blossom, mm -hmm. all people in all their different colors and diversity, you know, that they can bloom like the flowers of the field. Um, so I, I have read this and preached on this passage many times. I've never picked up on that particular thing before. It isn't until then you go, the grass withers and the flowers fall, <laughs> that you go. But but the, the point, I think, for me, when you said, well, what's the point, is there's a time when we do flourish and we do blossom, and now is a time perhaps to do that. I don't know, just yeah. a different way of thinking about it than I ever did before. Yeah, and I took it as sort of, I love that idea, Jill. That's awesome. Uh, that even in the midst of it, you know, we can look at it and we can say, well, what is the point? You know, what what's the use of all of this? But when we talked about, when y'all talked about in the beginning uh, of the podcast about some of the background, you know, with the temple destroyed the city in ruins, that, you know, it, it can it can feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. It can feel like there's no point anymore. I mean, people, even if you do great things, you're going to pass away and what remains? Nothing. Mm -hmm. But it's that last line that, you know, stuck out to me when we read this. The word of the Lord stands forever. Like, that's where we hang our hat. That's where we put our trust. Mm -hmm. You know, in the midst of the inconsistency and destruction and punishment and comfort and all of it that's the bottom line that, you know, God's word is, that God still is, that God's still here, and that that's what stands. Yeah. This whole passage from, from the beginning, you know, comfort, oh, comfort, and that whole passage that was talked about the first couple of verses, it, I had the image of childbirth come to my mind, mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, she completed her hard service, She's completed her hard labor. She's completed, um, you know, she has done what she needs to do. And now she has received double, you know, mm -hmm. now she has received something. She's, you know, um, I, I just feel like this is a new beginning for the people of Israel and a new way. And they have this new opportunity again. Yeah. Um, and even and if God the, is still God. Yeah. Right. And even at the moment of this new beginning to say like, to recognize your own fragility and the mm -hmm. fragility of everything in the world around you. You know, maybe you thought the temple was permanent, permanent, or maybe you thought the well-being of your whatever, your community or your location in Jerusalem or whatever. And it turns out none of that is. And that is wildly disorienting mm -hmm. and scary. Mm -hmm. And the word of the Lord. Yeah, stands. Yeah. What do you think? I was just thinking that it kind of reminded me that I think that that plays into all of these questions of identity, right? We don't know whose voice is speaking anywhere. And I wonder if there isn't a sense among the people of trying to sort out who are we? And we don't know whose voice is who <laughs> because we maybe, maybe right now I only kind of barely know who I am, mm -hmm. um, let alone who we are as a people or as a community. And so whoever's voice could be calling out to anybody and anybody could need to respond or not respond or 
whatever the case may be. But I hear those questions of identity coming up in this text as well. Yeah. I love that, thinking about this moment of like real sort of chaos personally Mm -hmm. and for the community more broadly that a voice, it doesn't matter who the voice is, who knows who the voice is. Uh You just, you know, you, yeah, I love that. That's why I liked the conversation with the group before us about, is it the community talking to the community? Mm -hmm. You know, this feels like we're all part of what's happening and we all go forward together and we all knowing that God is God. Mm-hmm. and we can do it better. We can do it differently. Mm-hmm. And it is going to make a difference, even though we are going to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For our time, such as this. Yeah. And that all, that jointness of it, that communal effort, that, you know, individuals, yes, individual flowers fade, right. But this community, the community has gone on, even in this tragedy, even in this destruction, the community still is community is still, you know, that remnant is still there. And so that's what carries on. I have, I also found another connection to creation in this section as well. In verse seven, it talks about the flower withers when the Lord's, in my translation, the Lord's Mm -hmm. breath blows. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Which reminded me of the stories of creation and God it's like breath- the inverse of it. Right, exactly. Yeah, that in creation, God breathes into the nostrils and that yeah. brings life into the human being. And here, so it's interesting to have the breath being both the thing that brings about life and breath being the thing that causes life to end yeah. as well. Yeah. So it's helpful to remember that breath, I, I'm assuming the term is ruach. In, in, uh, I'll look. It could be in this case, breath can mean wind, breath, or spirit. Mm -hmm. And that opens up all sorts of rich possibilities, even for going back to the first verses of Genesis and reflecting on those images. Yeah, it's Ruach. It is Ruach. Mm -hmm. So Ruach gives life and Ruach takes life Yeah. in this image. Which again, seems like they're really sort of wrestling with this, this idea that both all things come from God, including the things you don't want. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is there anything else? Yeah. I think that's where the comfort is, though. Mm. You know, and amidst this uncertainty and the, the seeming fragility of all of it, you know, that God still is. Even when we thought God only lived in the temple and the temple's no more, God wasn't destroyed. Right. And I feel like that's where in the midst of, you know, even today's chaos, you know, in the world and just personal, you know, our personal chaos is that we can still trust that God is there even in the midst of mm-hmm. the chaos mm-hmm. and the destruction sometimes. And yeah. Thank you, y'all. It's yeah. a beautiful Thank conversation. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so that brings us to our last section of this text for today. We have a new group of folks, so can you introduce yourself? We'll start over here. I'm Shemaine Chambers-King. I'm pastor of Windsor Presbyterian in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm Polly Deppin-Williams. I'm the executive presbyter and stated clerk for the Presbytery of Central Nebraska. I'm Suzanne Gorhow. I am pastor of Carson and Oakland Sharon Presbyterian Churches in Western Iowa. I'm Kay Onunu. I serve as pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church. 
Topeka, Kansas. All right, so the last verses began in verse 9. I'm reading in the Common English Bible. Go up on a high mountain, messenger Zion. Raise your voice and shout, messenger Jerusalem. Raise it, don't be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Here is the Lord God, coming with strength, with a triumphant arm, bringing his reward with him and his payment before him. Like a shepherd, God will tend the flock. He will gather lambs in his arms and lift them onto his lap. He will gently guide the nursing ewes. So I want to start back with that verse 9. Here again we have somebody going up on a high place and calling out. (laughs) How do you read that image in verse 9? So the new RSV translates it, get you up <laughs> yeah. to a high mountain. It really struck me funny. Like, get you up, you know, like like you say to a teenager, getting them out of bed, like, get up. Yeah. That, that's the way I was hearing it. I, I see it as you got to get the microphone out. You got to get the whole sound system. <laughs> this is a big announcement. We, we, we got to get all the people here. Mm-hmm. We got to do it upright. I also see something a little bit different in here. That is that whoever is receiving this instruction is quite reluctant to get the word out. Mm. And there is an insistent here. Okay, really, let's, let's get on the rooftop and get this thing. And I don't, I don't see a lot of willingness because the evidence on the ground is contrary. They are still in exile, right? They are still suffering. It, right now, who's going to believe that good news is coming when it's chaos all around? So I sense a lot of hesitancy in in getting the word out, this word of hope. I really love that. And going back to Polly's comment that Ali Lach, get yourself up, is an an unnecessary preposition there, Lach. You could simply say the same thing, Ali. And so it reminds you, or it might, of when God gives two commands to Abraham in Genesis, Lech Lecha. The first one is in Genesis 12, get yourself up away from Haran and go to the Holy Land. The second one, Lech Lecha, is get your son Isaac and take him up to the mountain for the sacrifice. Mm. So I really like, if you put those two together, then this sense of being commanded here to do something that there is a resistance to doing, like a teenager getting out of bed. That's really interesting. Well, that also says in here, do not fear. And so, yeah, Yeah. he's probably fearing what Mm -hmm. he's going to have to say or the people's reaction. Well, I just, it harkens back that from the very beginning, speak tenderly. Yeah. A voice cries out. The mouth of the word has spoken. Yes. A voice says cry out. Like continual reminders. Now is the time to herald this news. Yes. But then it also says that again, we hear, do not fear. Here's your God. Yeah. You know? But then at the end, too, I mean, it, there's this comfort in it. Don't fear. Here's your God. After they've just mm-hmm. said, you know, get you up. <laughs> yeah. But don't there, fear. There's this image of having to go up and say, here is your God, even when it seems like maybe like, where is where is God? Mm-hmm. But then in verse 10, here is the Lord God. So it's like God shows up when God is mm-hmm. beckoned in, in that sense. We get two images of God here. The first one in verse 10, coming with strength, the triumphant arm, bringing his reward and his payment before him. Can you talk to me about that image of God in this context? When I first read that verse, it, it uh, 
made sense why we needed the big highway. Like this is yeah. a God who needs a big highway. Yeah. Like strong, everything with him coming in, especially when then you compare it to the next image. But yeah. it feels very powerful. I also saw the, I guess, an element of what we saw earlier, this idea of receiving double for their punishment. Mm. Right? Now... The same God is giving something. There is a reward coming. So, yeah, I, I just saw that, that, that idea repeated here uh, in verse 10. Recompense. So when you see that language of bringing his reward and bringing his payment, how do you understand, like, K.O., it sounded like you were, you were thinking here is a reward that God is going to give to someone? Or is it a reward that God has gotten for doing something? What do, you, what do you do with that language of reward? Well, for me, the whole reward thing is, is difficult to figure out, especially if we consider the previous section that says that the people are like grass and they wither away. My read of that is that what is happening now, the coming of God, is entirely up to God. It is God's decision to make it so. It's not because these people have changed. You can't count on them. <laughs> they just fade away. They don't stand very long. They change their mind this way. They go that way. Who knows? But God has decided enough is enough. Mm. I'm going to do something different. So the idea of reward is, is, is uh, for me here, a difficult concept to decipher. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like they've really done anything. They haven't done anything. I think it brings us back a little to the earlier struggle with the theology in the passage, right? We, I tend to want a God who is all-loving and all-kind. And so back to the theodicy question mm-hmm. of this God who is bringing reward and punishment. Mm-hmm. I'll admit it's, a, it's an image of God that I often kind of put to the side. Mm-hmm. So here we have this big, powerful God riding in on the king's highway, And then we get this last verse, like a shepherd who tends the flock, who gathers lambs in his arms and lifts them onto his lap, gently guiding the nursing ewes. In my head, all I hear is he shall feed his flock from Handel's Messiah. Mm. (laughs) You know how it just comes in just so lyrical, this aria. But I wonder, it says his arms this time and his arm in the previous. Is that the same word? Where was the first arm? Um, In 10. It says his arm rules for him, and then the next one says he will gather the lambs in his arms. Mm. So I didn't know. Interesting. Why is it plural, you know? Amy, are you in the Hebrew? Yeah, I think they are both singular in the Hebrew. Really? I think they just couldn't picture a shepherd gathering. With one arm. With one arm. (laughs) (laughs) The famous one-armed shepherd. It would be tough, though. I think it's saying that God is strong when God needs to be strong, and God is tender when God needs to be tender. But the tenderness the is God. the last word in this passage, which is, and he, you know, I'm not going to sing it, but I hear it in my head, you know, just coming in. Which is maybe what they need to hear because of tough. everything they've gone through. Yep, it's mm-hmm. been very tough. But also, the, the the strength is also for God's enemies, too, so... For our enemies, God God maybe is going to be strong for us. There's one way of reading it, which is that, so God has gone into Babylon, 
and won a triumph. And now God is bringing that reward and payment back. But then when you look more closely, that God is the shepherd God who has the people of Judah under God's arm, right? So that God's reward is the people that God is now bringing back. Not that God is rewarding the people, but that that is God's reward for having done, having ended the exile is to bring people back. Does that image resonate or... Or no? So the people are God's reward to God's self, God's mm-hmm. celebration. Right. Mm. Are we imagining that the people are still in Babylon? Are they in exile? It's a good question. The general answer is yes. It seems to be the case. Most scholars will argue that the prophet is writing at the tail end of the exile, but before the exile has ended. But I think you're seeing something important, which is that the location uh, is back in the land, right? Mm -hmm. It's go up and call out to Judah, get you up Jerusalem and call out to Judah. So there's a sense in which the perspective is in the land, even though the people are still in the exile. Any other things that you all notice in your reading of this passage, these verses that you want to pull out? If we're supposed to get up on a high mountain, if, if whoever's supposed to get up on a high mountain, all the mountains have just been leveled. So I'm not sure where we're going to find them. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no. Those mountains that are leveled are in the wilderness. That's on the highway. Oh, God. Uh, oh, right into town. Yeah. Well, on the way into town. Exactly. Zion is the only mountain. Right. Zion and the Temple Mount still stand. Right. Yeah. right? So, yeah. so get up on Zion. Get up on the Temple Mount. Yeah. And it just occurs to me, you know, Zion is... Uh, as I understand it, is a bit of a generic word for uh, not just Jerusalem or the temple, but uh, even all all Israel or the the world to come, the, the imagined day uh, of, of the Lord's return. So I, I think I Zion that, can have all those resonances. Right, I, I just yeah. feel that all resonating through this. Yeah. I'll just say, um, reading this whole passage, comfort, comfort my people, today, a month into the war, mm-hmm. is just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And I feel like every verse resonates with the difficulty and the complexities of what's happening in Jerusalem and Zion today. Shemaine has very nicely transitioned us into <laughs> our last part of the podcast. Where normally what we say is, uh, hey, Amy, if you were a preacher who had to preach this on Sunday, what would you say, or vice versa? Today, we have the great luxury of actually having a room full of people who are tasked exactly with that. And so what we thought we would do today is invite people to start thinking about connections, as Shemaine has started us thinking about, for where does this text touch the ground today? And if you think about how this might resonate with your own community and what they might need to hear from this text, uh, what kinds of things might you point to? So we'll, we'll make that an open invitation if anybody who's sitting here has something you, you want to contribute to that, feel free. Um, otherwise, other folks who might have something that you're thinking about, you could come on up and share that. I'm going to touch again on Handel's Messiah to listen to these passages that are comfort ye, my people, and then a voice cries out, isn't, you know, to really listen to that because I could see that entering into your sermon almost of having that, that music there um, in the midst of preaching it. It's just so focused on Isaiah 40 for that part of that, the oratorio. So, yeah. What I like to lift up for me is uh, 
the mutual comfort, the idea that the people comfort one another. I can imagine a people who are hanging their heads. It's just been so difficult and no hope, uh, a lot of power against them. And here comes this word that says, okay, put your hand on somebody's shoulder, start encouraging one wow. another because this thing is over. Mm-hmm. Things are about to change. What strikes me the most in this moment is just the juxtaposition of God is this strong, mighty uh, being and also this tender shepherd God and and how we need both, how we, and sometimes we need one, sometimes we need another more, but uh, that's what parents do too. They have to be strong and, and disciplined, but also the loving gentleness. Beautiful. And I would say too that in, in the expanse of all of this possibly being comforting to talk about the diversity of humanity and what is comforting to different people at different times. What comes to my mind when I think about it in the pulpit is that in almost every book of the Bible, you can find a word of judgment and a word of mercy. In almost every chapter, in almost every verse, in almost every word that you dig deeply into enough. And after having studied Ezekiel with a Sunday school class for several weeks, uh, well, a few months, and the bombardment of pain and suffering and horror uh, that Ezekiel anticipated would happen, mm-hmm. the Deuteronomy Isaiah brings, finally brings a word of mercy into that picture. And, and with the power of God to be like a, a returning emperor from battle, to also be a thoughtful, kind, uh, tender, caring shepherd. Mm. It's so nice to hear a word of mercy in a very difficult series of passages. I'm kind of rereading this now. I, I loved what Amy said or suggested about the possibility of this being the voices of the angels. And I'm now looking at like each little section is a different voice. And the comfort, comfort my people, God, maybe to the angelic host. The voice is crying out, being those angelic hosts kind of crying out and saying, let's prepare the way of the Lord. The voice saying, um, all flesh is grass. It dries up and the flower withers as the voice to the oppressors. Mm. And then this other voice to the people that is like a hope, a liberation. And uh I, the community I serve is a very desolate, poor, not a lot of hope. And this idea that God is making this new way and that I'm calling you to shout that they don't have the final word, that you will not always live like this, but to get on the mountaintops and proclaim that I am in charge. And then like all the rest of this that follows is just a reminder. Like, look at the skies. Look at who I am. And and to me, I see this message of liberation. Thank you for that, uh, Trisha. We didn't really explore that possibility too much in the podcast, but it is entirely possible to read this whole text as a conversation that takes place in the angelic realm. And so there's no human actor in here at all. And God has said, go and speak to the people. 
if you read it that way, you know, we were, we had been unfolding this conversation about it's so encouraging to say, speak hope to one another, which I think is exactly right. But you could also imagine people who are not able to muster speaking hope that what we have here is angels whose task is to speak hope to the people and the angels are going to make the path. The angels are going to do all the things and the people just have to receive this gift that is coming to them. I think that is a really lovely interpretation of this text. It's, it's absolutely in there as well. Uh, if you hold both of those interpretations together, I think there's a real richness there. And that last part too, speaking, it's the people, like when you guys were talking about the, when Kayla was talking about the not wanting to get up and proclaim the news, like being in the middle of that desperation that maybe speaking to Isaiah or speaking to the people, you've got to get up and, and proclaim hope and liberation. Mm-hmm. In, in looking at this, I, I, I kept coming back to uh, another passage and the overall sweep of the biblical narrative, um, uh, which for me has always been about hope. It's always been about restoration. It's always been about redemption. So from Psalm 30, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Mm-hmm. And as hard as that is to see at times, it's just like that is sort of the ultimate promise of God is that whatever, whatever difficulty, whatever horror we're going through now is not going to last and it's not what God desires that God is always looking for a way to redeem to bring back to gather us in uh-huh. I had a very similar reaction to it but from a different part of the same text uh, in verse 8 the grass withers the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever and so contrasting sort of the temporal nature of everything in this world and this life and our suffering and and thinking specifically about the Israelites and what they're experiencing, but then the word of our God will stand forever. And that word is, that word is hope. That word is love. And because this is a, an Advent passage, Mm. uh, I see the link there to obviously the first chapter of the gospel of John in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Mm. And we can, I think you could riff on that pretty beautifully talking about all of the challenges that we're facing today. Those are temporary. God's constant love is forever. It was with us before time. It's with us now. It will be with us to time immemorial. I think that leads into what I was going to draw out, the temporal nature. But in verse 9, get you up to a high mountain. Oh, Zion. Not necessarily that mountain, Mm. (laughs) but it's a mountain. And I don't know if that's in the Hebrew and indefinite or, or not, but that God's blessing can be announced. God's hope can be announced from anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, I think that's the word that we need today mm-hmm. as a word of hope. And that would be my challenge to my people is to speak that word of hope in wherever they are. Mm. Amen. Amy, this has been such a beautiful conversation. I've been sort of pacing along the side of the room with sort of what I can only describe as some kind of like holy agitation. (laughs) There is, um, there's a a rabbinic teaching that, that, 
you know, words of Torah love being joined to each other. And there's this sort of like mystical thing that happens that I, I really felt in this room. Like I feel this flickering flame that's very agitating, but in a good way. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. You all really did honor to this text. Nice job, everyone. Let's say thanks. Thank, I will say thank you. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next time when we'll be back to our regular format as we discuss Ezra 1, 1-4, and 3, 1-13. Until then, keep on digging.